This week, Evan wanted to do the intro, but intros are for closers. So he and I watched Glenn Gary Glenn Ross instead. Welcome back to How Did You Miss This? A show where we watch really quotable movies that some of us missed the first time around. With me, as always, Michael Hansen and Krista Shane. I am Evan Toller Hickey. And this week, we watched the 1992 David Mamet written film, Glengarry, Glen Ross. Pacino, Lemon, Harris, Arkin, Baldwin, Spacey. This movie has all the white problematic and otherwise men in it. Six Oscars in the main cast. Chris, how did we possibly miss this movie? I honestly don't know how I missed this movie. I, I It's just, I guess it came out in 92. I was... T- too young. I was, you know, 12 years old a- at the time when this would have come out. So uh, I can certainly understand why, um, you know, I wouldn't have seen a movie that has like 170 whatever F-bombs in it uh, at that age. Uh, but I don't know how I haven't seen it net, uh, since because it's such a, like you said, it's a quotable movie. You know so many bits from this movie that you would have seen elsewhere. Um so I have no idea how I haven't seen it until now. Yeah, man, I've got a a, a minor in theater, and uh, you, you know I've I've had to read David Mamet plays. Uh, I am quite familiar with his work in general, and yet uh, I've never read this play, uh, and I've never seen this movie. And and to your point. Definitely too young when it came out. I doubt this movie even came to my town. I mean, as we've talked about before, small town, one theater, one screen. This came out October 92. You know, again, I was just turned 13. It opened the same weekend as The Mighty Ducks and Mr. Baseball, both of which I definitely saw in theaters. Um, yeah. This is I, I'm too young for it. And then I don't know, got lost in the cracks, I guess. But Michael. You saw this movie before. This is one of those, like a lot of the other ones we talked about, I saw in the theater. This I did not. This just snuck up on me much, much later. And it must have been one of those where you go to the uh, video store and there's like literally no other uh, VHS cassette remaining. Because I wouldn't have picked it based on the name. It's like three tractors, one lawn. Type of a name. It's not exciting. Like, there's nothing. I don't want to see that it, movie. Yeah. There's the only reason I can think of is that it was the only thing remaining, uh, and it, it didn't have a lasting memory. So I was I was kind of sort of interested in rediscovering it because I didn't have a strong memory of it. Um, so it's in a way it'll be fresh for all of us, uh, and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah. So like we said, you know, this is uh, David Mamet piece uh, based on David Mamet's play that won the 1984 Pulitzer Prize. So this is not a a slouchy piece of of writing. And in fact, I mean, we've talked about writers and directors bringing a certain level of authenticity to things. 
you know, particularly we were talking about Oliver Stone in the Platoon episode, bringing his experiences from Vietnam, being a soldier in Vietnam to Platoon. This is based on David Mamet's own experience working in a real estate office in the 1970s. And he was the office manager who would give out like the leads and handled the paperwork. So he was sort of the Kevin Spacey character, uh, hopefully not as slimy and gross as the Kevin Spacey character. But, you know, that that is where this is coming from. And we have you know a, a very modest production budget. And this is $12.5 million, which when you think about the actors who are in this, it's, that is crazy to me that they were able to do this for so little. Apparently, the single largest cost in this film was the rain that they had over the first half of the movie. And, you know, 39-day shoot, three weeks of rehearsal. Again, the fact that they have such crazy heavy hitters at the top of their game uh, in this movie, $12.5 million, bananas to me. Yeah, I mean, I think think the budget works because it's essentially you know, set in two main locations, an office, a restaurant, and then, you know, a couple spare locations. So it's not like you're going crazy on on all that stuff. But to your point, I mean, this is Alec Baldwin, Ed Harris, Kevin Spacey, Jack Lemmon, Alan Arkin, Al Pacino, and Jonathan Price. Oh, Jonathan Price, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, probably not the same recognizable name in 1992 as he is today, but still like a list of actors who, you know, uh, um, certainly would uh, highlight uh, and lead most movies that they would be in. You've got all, all of them in this film altogether. And I think the crazy part for me was reading about it, that um, um, not only are they at the pinnacle of their careers, but none of these folks actually um, had to audition for the role. All of them were just offered the parts. Uh, and every, each one was kind of like in mind for um, bringing this movie uh, together because this is actually being a play um, which uh, debuted in in the 80s. It took uh, almost a decade before it became uh, a film and came together on screen. So uh, I think a lot of these actors were already well aware of, uh, you know, Mamet's work and uh, the amazing uh, dialogue in this uh, play itself, which had been well, uh, was punched up a little bit for the film. But I think a lot of these folks were already well aware. And I think it's kind of one of those um, real unique opportunities for a lot of these actors to be in something that has this kind of uh, writing and these characters that they could really sink their teeth into. But uh, I think we get into that a little bit more um, because when this movie came out, despite the amazing writing, the Pulitzer Prize winning uh, play, um, this cast that's just like over the top, uh, this movie basically did nothing at the box office. $10 million, $10 million. And so like, I I think one of the big questions around this is why didn't this do better because big actors to michael's point though you know it's three tractors one lawn i think it was uh and i mean it's kind of a movie that's a little bit hard to get amped up about where you're like slimy salesmen do slimy stuff and you're like okay so i think it's a little bit of a hard sales pitch for most people to to get them out to the theaters on this i I think that's something we've talked about in a in a couple of the previous episodes around how the heck do you market these things that aren't really one thing or another? And people, traditional marketing, play around with 
the posters, they play around with, you know, like photos and things like that. And this, I think, is exactly that. Like, they have no idea what to, to do with it. Is it a drama? Is it sort of comedy? Is it like, there, there's no telling what the thing is. So just like you get people, it's almost like throwing dice into a thing. Go, here you go. Just good luck. Yeah, it, I mean, with a ten million dollar box office, it's kind of like the only people who saw it were people who either knew the play or or the critics, and the the critics saw it and loved it. Um, I'm quite frankly surprised at awards season. It's only Pacino who gets nominated and for a best supporting actor. It, it blows my mind that more people from this film weren't nominated. You know, to, to this day, the Rotten Tomato score is ninety five percent. So, really, really highly regarded. Uh, Chris, tell me, like having now seen this in twenty twenty three, does this hit for you, or you know, were you happy you saw it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm super happy to have seen it, especially because there's so many um, bits out of this movie that you know, right? Like coffee is for closers and always be closing. Basically, that entire Alec Baldwin rant uh, that kind of takes place in the first few minutes of the movie. Um, I didn't know about most of the rest of the movie. Uh, and so the the performances brought in were just so amazing. And um, yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have seen it. How about you, Evan? Uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those funny things where uh, something has, and we've talked about this a, a bit, certainly in the Enter the Dragon episode, where things have an outsized um, cultural or pop cultural footprint to the thing that that they are. And I feel like watching this movie, suddenly all of these references that I know, you know, secondhand open up to me you know, from everything from, uh, you know, seeing always be closing or coffees for closers in context to being like, Oh, the Jack lemon character is what the character of Gil from the Simpsons is based on. Oh. And so all of those things kind of click. And when you get that, um, feeling of, Oh, I, now I get where that reference comes from. Um, other things become much richer. And so like, I'm really glad that, that uh, I finally seen this. Michael, how about you? Like revisiting this? We're going to talk about this, I think, after the break, but this is going to be an important one for anyone who considers, who haven't watched it and considers to pause here and watch it, is that it's super important to know that it's based on a play. So much of my uh, feedback and comment about this is that whole dichotomy. It's based on a play and they acted like a play yet it is a movie and there's certain expectations that come from watching a movie in the theater. So like that to me, I had to kind of switch my head around. Am I enjoying this as a play or as a movie? And I'm glad I rewatched it because like there are a lot of really interesting things to talk about with this, but I have a complicated relationship with, with this movie overall. Well, so that's, that's an interesting thing so for for you would uh would you say that this is something that for the folks who had missed it you think is worth the watch for them or is this something that you'd say well maybe maybe it should stay missed 100 percent worth the watch with a small caveat that it's more like a play on television than a movie but 100 percent worth the watch how about you evan 
Yeah, definitely worth the watch, if for nothing else, than to know the source of so many things in our pop culture landscape. Yeah, I'm. I definitely think that this one's uh, worth a watch as well. The performances are just too good to to pass up. I can understand Michael's thing about the the. It's a play. Totally agree. But I, I definitely think just the quality of the performances worth the show. So uh, let's take a break here, and on the other side, we can get into uh, why we think it's a movie that's worth a watch. Welcome back. So we're going to be getting into everything about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, curse words and all. So uh, if you don't want this movie spoiled for you, that is about to happen. Uh, For those of you who need the recap, well, what happens in this movie? Well, when a group of salesmen are forced to compete for their jobs, these shady real estate salesmen try harder than ever to con their customers and each other. Um, I mean, I think the the key thing about this movie, as we have kind of already uh, outlined for everybody, is the performances. And I think probably the one that's most memorable uh, or even well known before you see the movie uh, is the performance of Alec Baldwin. And the crazy part about this is that's not something that was in the play originally. Um, his part, Blake, was added to the movie to add kind of this um uh, outburst at the beginning that really sets the tone and 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 upscales uh, the the tension in the movie. Like, how what what is your reaction when you see Alec Baldwin's just salvo of evil and hatred on that group of folks at the beginning of the movie? I mean, in terms of setting tone of you know, toxic masculinity and just like the worst of capitalism and, uh, and all of those, you know, just sorts of things that make my skin crawl. He does such a good job. And, you know, to your point, Chris, like that was added later. It's not in the, not in the original, uh, play. And, it is in so many ways the most memorable part of this movie, certainly the one that gets quoted the most. And it makes me wonder, because there was like 10 years between this play being written and this film adaptation, are we seeing Mamet kind of just his his writing powers kind of develop and grow even from when he was winning the Pulitzer and he comes and writes this extraordinary monologue for uh, Alec Baldwin's character and then just so beautifully sets up these power dynamics uh, where, you know, you've got that blustery Ed Harris character and Alec Baldwin just dumping all over him and then him taking shots at Lemon's character and all of these things. And the fact that Pacino's character isn't there for this Salvo, uh, you know, he's he's made so present by his absence. It's it's a really impressive piece of piece of work. Um, so yeah, the, like the, in, in a movie of great performances, it's the shortest performance uh, of the main cast, and and also one of the best to me. 
Yeah, it, it clocks in at seven or eight minutes uh, in in the movie. And, and he's never the, seen again. Yeah, just he closes his suitcase, walks off and it's done. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think one of the fascinating things about it for me was that uh, apparently the the studio asked David Mamet to like have some special effects or something at the beginning of the movie as a way of kind of like setting it off. And what he decided to do was write that blake character into the movie so instead of like something dramatic or whatever it was this person exploding rather than you know something rather else other than the spaceship coming in at the beginning of glenn gary glenn ross yeah exactly <laughs> i think also they out of all of them he is the only one who comes in and he says look i made this much drive this vehicle he actually has the stuff to show for it so everybody else talks about it the ed harris character wants to do all these things. He's got excuses. Um, uh, Lemon has all these things that he talks about that, that are all excuses. But uh, here you have Alec Baldwin coming in saying, look, here's the deal. This is what you're going to do. I'm successful. I've done all these things. And you do it too or you're out. And it's so powerful. It's so pure. And exactly for the reasons you mentioned, Evan, like the, the things that make him despicable, you could also then say, uh, like the, the Wall Street example, where there's a lot of people that would gravitate to that and say, hey, that person, I want to be that person. And that's probably not what it was meant to be, but it's like, it's the one that shows success, results, um, confidence. And it's like, you do this or you're out. Goodbye. I mean, it, as Evan said, it sets the tone for everybody else's performance, the stakes that they're all now up against to, you know, under this kind of limited time frame, deliver or 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 they're gone, um, and then that kind of sets off this chain reaction of all these other amazing actors kind of doing this this uh, you know in, intricate tango with each other. Uh, I mean, I, I, I honestly struggled um, after seeing this movie multiple times to honestly say who I thought was the best performer in this movie, especially because so many of the scenes rely on this kind of like intricate dance between two of these characters. Uh, and so I don't know if any of the, the performances stand out for either of you. I mean, the movie, like the, the acting in this movie is crazy good. I, I'm surprised that this isn't referenced more often as like, hey, you want to see actors really like digging down and acting? Check out Glengarry Glenn Ross. Like, but in some ways, it also like it, it's it. Pacino, for instance, can get so big, but then there are these moments where he is so quiet. And draws you in so much when he's reeling Jonathan Price's character in with the, you know, his philosophy and life. And, you know, maybe a guy shows you a real estate investment opportunity and maybe that means something. Maybe it doesn't. I'm just saying that I've got this thing here and it's just, it's so compelling and it's so cool to see somebody as bombastic as Pacino, uh, just play so quiet before he then gets so big again later on. Now, I can see why he he was pulled up for the, the Best Supporting Actor nomination, 
But to your point, Chris, it doesn't make sense to me that he was chosen over Harris or Lemon or, you know, Spacey or Price or uh, Arkin. Here's the part that's hard for me because I, like, I love Jonathan Price, but I think he was uh, really underused in this. And I thought that his character didn't have a chance to do anything until the very end. And then he kind of has a chance to express all of his regret. In the beginning, you didn't even know, they don't even properly introduce that he's a prospect versus just someone in the firm. It's a really weird thing in the beginning. Um, and similarly, some of the other ones, like Ed Harris does a terrific job, but he's a little bit one-dimensional because he's got his one thing around the unfairness and the leads. Um, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't think that uh, Kevin Spacey gets enough in this because he, to me, was the most believable. He has like a real range of emotion. Al Pacino, he, yes, he's big and he does these things, but it, it feels like a stage performance. Whereas I think Kevin Spacey, to me, felt like a movie performance, something where it's more intimate to the camera and you're talking, it's dialogue. And it's probably because of their background and what they've done. Um, but I actually think that Kevin Spacey is the, the best performance, hands down, for me. Like I, I felt that that's genuine, that's real, and, and I can really believe that. Yeah, I've, I found it really interesting because uh, I can see um, how Pacino stands out. But for me, it was actually Lemon that was for me, the, the most interesting character, because he goes from, he has a real arc of like being down on his luck and, you know, scrounging to make a buck to like the pinnacle of success. And then this like absolute defeat, uh, by the end of the movie. And you can see that play out on his face throughout too. So wonderfully, but I I will say that one of the performances that I feel like gets slept on a little bit here for me, which I, I really loved was Alan Arkins. Um, and especially the scene between, um, uh, Aaron now and Moss in the car uh, after they've left the office. And it's this like perfect ballet between these two guys, Moss going off, like just angry about everything. And hey, it's not right. It's not right. And you've got like Arkin putting in those perfect beats of like, no, yeah, you're right. You're, you're right. What are we men? We're men. Yeah. And it's just that like, pacing that kind of like stokes the fires and it's delivered in such a way where it I don't know it just feels so incredibly genuine that he's just figuring it out just then as he's going along and I don't know it just feels so truly genuine I found that in every scene he's in even though it's probably the smallest part out of all of those you know big names um, it just felt so great to me every time because it's such like a a little bit of a palate cleanser between the like abusive cursing and you know like taking it out on each other to just have these moments with with alan arkin kind of like oh thank god a little a little lightness a little levity a little bit of you know humanity even though he's probably one of the weak weak guys at at the office i'm glad you brought this up because i will have some gripes around writing and it's still the nature of it but you're right like those that particular scene when they go into this whole thing around like that is back and forth. So you didn't actually talk to him. Well, no, not actually. And, uh, well, uh, what did I say? Well, what did he say? Like, there's this interplay that feels like, okay, now I'm engaged. This felt genuine. This felt like clever. And, and what he brings to it is like you say, it's perfect. That thing right there is a highlight. I don't think that that 
is what he does consistently through the thing. I'm also going to save a point for later because he gets one of the best things at the very end of the movie. Just hold on to that for a bit. But like, yeah, you're right. Like this exchange was a, a brilliant one in the movie. So let's talk a little bit about the dialogue then, because this is, you know, Mamet is a playwright and he is known for a very kind of specific style of dialogue. And that is these like punchy, quick back and forth sort of thing with lots of swearing. Um, you know, how did you feel that these different characters handled it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the dialogue is um, I mean, it's great. I think half of it is, um, you know, it's very explicit. I know everything in here, every every pause, every stutter is something that was in the script, right? Like nobody's kind of ad libbing or going off book like this is all uh, down uh, in in the writing. And I think that's pretty amazing. I think what. Uh, where the actors help flesh it out is the, you know, it's like jazz. You, It's like, you you know what the tune of the song is, how it's going to play, you know, all the words, uh, but it's just that, that timing that each of those actors bring to it that make it come alive in this particular case. But yeah, the dialogue is just like, at points I found myself mystified, like you were saying with, you know, Pacino luring in uh, links, um, you know, for that, for that, for that sale, I find myself being like hypnotized at other times. I feel myself being like just revolted almost by the behavior of these guys. Uh, at other times I felt myself having a ton of compassion for some of them. Uh, like it was a real roller coaster, and like, uh, it's all just like down to these simple, like words and emotions that are coming out through this really simple story. So my take is this, where there are, if you're doing it like a play, there's precision. There's something that has to be done with big, clear delineations of, I'm standing over here, I'm talking right now, and then later, the person on the other side of the stage is going to say something in, the, in return, you take turns. And I think you see this throughout in this movie. And that's not to say that carefully planned things are, are bad, because, you, you know, uh, I think Aaron Sorkin is famous for telling people, like his actors, no, you, you don't change anything. These are the words that I wrote. You see it in Wes Anderson, where there's a real precision in exchange. So it can work when you have that. Um, and then you have people, of course, that are like really, really more with the improv, uh, like Christopher Guest, or where, where uh, you're looking at sort of like Tarantino has amazing dialogue. This, to me, really felt like a play in a bad way. I can admire the writing. They deliver it well, but there are times where it just feels like monologue as opposed to a dialogue or any sort of exchange. It's just, I'm going to say a thing, then you're going to have a close-up, and you're going to say a thing. And it's just that, unless you go into this knowing that this is based on a play, to me, like that, that could really break the entire experience. So do you think that that comes down to the direction then, Michael? Is I certainly wasn't thrilled with the direction of this film. Um but I, I'm curious to know what what you felt about it and what you felt about it, Chris. I think that I think that they made a decision to do a literal translation with some fancy camera movement uh, versus kind of saying, "Great, so we have this really amazing dialogue. Like, what could we what could we do with it? How could we make it more natural?" 
So it, to me, it felt like a literal interpretation of something that's better enjoyed on stage. And that probably is, is the, the cause of a bunch of these issues that I felt. Yeah, I, I, I found that some of the, um, you know, the, the blocking of some of these shots and those kinds of things, I think help underline the, the power dynamic of the scenes. So I like in some of those things, I, I found that was effective. I don't know what those would have been like in the play. I've never seen the play. I've only seen snippets and stuff that you can find online. I've never seen the, the thing in its entirety. But like, you know, when Blake is dressing down everybody in the thing, uh, everybody winds up sitting while he's walking around on on his rant. Uh, you know, you can see the the change of position as the power dynamic shifts between various characters um, like uh, Levine and Williamson later on in in uh, in the movie, there's little bits where things are added, where um, characters are um, uh, like eating or chewing gum or something in these moments where they are kind of in that position of power, almost to you know uh, exemplify just how at ease they are because they are in control. So I think there's a lot of like little nods there that I would say like I don't know if there's an original play and those are just brought over, or whether that's an active directing choice. Uh, in either case, I'm like, well, that worked for me as I was watching it. But to Michael's point, there's also these points where you get these like weird, like zoom ins, dolly ins, close ups, uh, like panning shots or whatever, where you're just like, I am supposed to be paying attention to this actor right now. And it's just a little bit too heavy handed. I didn't find that took away from what was going on, the dialogue and what the actors were doing. But by and large, I, I don't know. I was kind of neutral on it overall i guess how about yourself evan well so james foley the director this is his second feature film he's really known uh for being the director of madonna's music videos and i think he did who's that girl and one so maybe this is his third um feature film and the the times where he makes the camera really noticeable either in the edits or in the camera movements. Those are the times where I feel like I was taken out of, out of the film. It, so weirdly enough, it's when you are sort of being told by the camera movements or the editing that this is a film is when I was taken out of the film. I was, I preferred when it felt more like a stage play but when the there was a you know a big dolly uh back during uh the end of Shelley's story where he's talking about selling to the nibors or you know the the sort of like swoop in when it's like oh this is a very important moment between these two characters or uh when uh, uh harris and and arkin are at the diner and the editing suddenly like they're editing on the edge of every single one of their like really punchy lines. So it's like, what cut? What do you mean? Did I to ask to cut back to, Oh yeah, no, I talked to him, cut back to, yeah, but you said cut back to, and it's that I found so distracting. I, so this movie was praised for its directing when it came out, um, you know, Ebert and Siskel, they both sort of lavished praise on the directing. And and actually, I found that that was really the weakest performance here um, and that this movie may have been even better 
were it uh, in the hands of of maybe a more skilled director. Or even just a lighter touch on a lot yeah. of those things. Yeah, I agree. Like yeah. even, even as Alec Baldwin was dropping dropping hammers on people, and then suddenly it cuts over his shoulder, and everybody's just sitting there. Like it was just like too jarring when you've just followed Alec Baldwin for the last couple of minutes. I think Evan, you just articulated what my concern was in such a good way, which is pick one thing mm-hmm. because that thing around being the switch. I'm really a play, but I'm also every now and then acting like I'm something else. That is probably what annoyed me more than anything. Because if you commit to the thing, I think it would have been that much better. Um, I don't mind watching a, a play uh, as a movie, but exactly what you said. Like every now and then they kind of do this flip flop and you go, okay, well, that just took me out of this experience. And this other experience is nowhere as good. And yeah, like I think you captured it perfectly. Yeah, but when it's when it's working, and this is one of those things that we talked about in the Vertigo episode, um, where we talked about the 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 blocking and those changes in power dynamics. Here you see that again, and it when it works, it works so well. I mean, this film is essentially you know an exploration of power dynamics, and and you see that so well. You know, first right off the the jump with the the character um, that Baldwin plays, talking to everyone except Pacino, um, but then that sort of power struggle question mark um, between Lemon and Spacey's characters throughout the film. You know, and it's just it's so good. Their dance uh, between the two of them is is really beautiful and horrifying and awful and you know and, and and terrible in the sort of more true sense of the word where it's just like truly fills you with kind of like just awful feelings yeah i think one of the things that for me helps underline the the power dynamics of this movie too and i mean I, like you were saying in terms of the dialogue uh and like Mamet's work is just filled with cursing and even the tenor, like the, the, the way that they were swearing at each other throughout this movie changes as each of them uh, kind of shifts from one position, because that, when they're in that position of power and one is making the point because they're right and they're, they're in that kind of like dominant position, it's like abusive cursing, putting the other one down when suddenly they're, they're, um, you know, on the, on their back foot or whatever they're, they're, uh, like when Moss is, uh, just come out from, from the cops and then, um, uh, Roma is kind of getting on him or whatever, like it becomes almost like defensive. Like he's just using curse words to like try to get the other guy to back up or, or leave him alone. Like even just the, the use of cursing uh, was a little bit like a roller coaster ride. As you get into these confrontations, suddenly it's just coming out like machine gun fire and the way that they're using it changes uh, based on which position they're in, whether they're on the defense or whether on the, the attack, which is kind of this constant shift that you see uh, throughout the movie between these different characters. That's a that's a brilliant point. I didn't think about that before. But like, there's so much posturing in this because the salespeople have to do that. They have to be like, I'm the best. I'm going to be the best again. Maybe I had a, a bad week. But like, I'm, I'm the best. So there's a whole bunch of posturing going on. And then when you have that desperation, when they kind of see death coming for them, like 
then it changes. So really good that you pointed out because that that is a true thing in the in the writing and the acting carries it out super well, like that shift throughout the entire thing. Yeah, these guys are so abusive to each other. I mean, this whole movie, like they like the 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 their workplace is an abusive relationship. Like they just can't get out of it. It is it is so horrifying. Like it truly is hellish to me. And and I, I think we also need to point out though, like this is an important one for anyone watching for the first time now. The language has not dated well in many cases. So there are a lot of references um, that do not translate well to today, whether it is about like um, uh, gay people or uh, uh, immigrants. So like there's a thing there that you have to accept that this is how they talk to each other to get a common. Well, so... That was going to be one of my questions, though, is does does the you know messages about like what this means in terms of like masculinity and uh, capitalism and the language, does it make it less relevant to today or does is it just as relevant to today? Because I, I don't know if you put somebody in that kind of pressure cooker situation and and, you know, it's eat or be eaten kind of thing like. I don't know. I, I think people are going to stoop to lows that are just as gross and awful today as ever, as ever before. Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Chris. I, I, in fact, I think this movie is super relevant today um, because it is such a damning portrayal of, you know, capitalism and toxic masculinity and, and, and you still see so much of that today. I mean, these are guys who are, are just, really trying to make a living and here comes this guy at the beginning being like either you do well or you're fired and that's it you know first place is a car second place is a set of steak knives third place is you're fired and i I, one of the things i i wonder about about this movie at this point is um you know this 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 pressure cooker yucky super masculine super capitalistic whatever environment like do you think that the people um are the people drawn to this environment or the or are the people created by this environment oh that is a good question i th- I wonder if it's a bit of both because it feels like the Baldwin character is drawn to the environment, right? Whereas like the, that maybe, uh, you know, Shelley, uh, uh, Lemon's character has become a product of the environment with the way that he's, you know, the way that he becomes so, uh, you know, cocksure and terrible the moment that he finally feels like he's got a sale again, but then you watch all of that kind of get sucked out of him. The way that he's pleading with uh, uh, Williamson, Kevin Spacey's character earlier on, where it's just, give me a lead, give me one of the good leads. Like, I'll give you, I'll give you 20%, I'll give you 30%, I'll give 50%, I'll give you 50% and 50 bucks, 100 bucks up front. You know, and it's just that that uh feels like it's become kind of like uh learned behavior i also think like this is such a good question because it kind of 
echoes everything about modern business and finance because Ed Harris and Jack Lemmon represent sort of some sort of old guard. Ed Harris says, you don't sell a guy a car. You sell him five cars over 15 years. Uh, and the whole idea is that you have a relationship. There's certain ways that you do things. There's certain uh, things that you do because it's right for me and it's right for you. And it's been replaced over time with this new way of thinking, which is just make the call, make the sale, move on. So I think that you have people who were drawn to it for the right reason. You can do the right thing and make money. And now you have this new person, Alec Baldwin's character, who represents a different thing. And people get drawn into that because it's like, oh, I can make so much money. I can be so successful. So there's a thing around like shaping it. You get drawn to it because you like it. And when you're in it, you help to shape the next generation of people coming. I mean, they do say a man is his job in this movie. Yeah, yeah, they do. They make they make a few uh, very clear uh, assertions about how your job is all you can be and the ho- the heights you hope to aspire to. I I find it really interesting in this movie just because like there's very clearly some characters who aren't cut out for this, right? Aronow, like George Aronow, is not meant to be here. I actually uh, was reading that um, uh, Alan Arkin didn't want to take this role at first because generally. Like George is just not a very, he's a weak willed character. Uh, He only took it once he was able to kind of carve out this story for himself in his own head about why um, he was there. And that I think maybe made him more interesting than in some of the, because he basically created this backstory where like he was a teacher that lost his job and then was just trying to make ends meet. So he's actually a decent dude. And that's why he's always like, ah, oh, I hate this job. And I, he's like, seems lost and befuddled because he's kind of the new guy uh, who's just can't figure this kind of thing out. But like, I think one of the things for me was like with Lemon, he has definitely learned the behavior because you see him then when he's trying to get in touch with, uh, you know, his daughter uh, and, you know, those moments where he isn't suddenly dealing with, the, the other folks are in the office where he seems, you know, vaguely like a human again. Uh, and and actually you have those moments, too, from Pacino, where I think Pacino actually um, he can be cutthroat and ruthless. And but he's also probably the most genuine because he has those moments when Levine makes the sale where he's like, hey, good for you. Taking pride in it and like, good, good job. I'm happy for you, which I don't think anybody else really seems to be able to do. So it's interesting, right? Like we, we see all these people, um, we've seen their different motivations. Like it seems like some of them are just fundamentally terrible at their job. And some of them might be really good, but like, it'd be really interesting to see from each of you, like who is who in this? Because I honestly can't tell. I think that's, an excellent question. Maybe it's time for a quick break. Uh, and on the other side, we can have a conversation about who who is a closer who should get some coffee. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we left off with the question, are any of these guys actually good at what they do? So it's a really good question. Uh, I honestly don't know. The only time that we see Pacino making a sale, despite the fact that we know that he is the guy at the top of the board, is by getting somebody drunk and making them 
sign a check. And it seems like Lemon seems certainly dogged and persistent. And you actually see him out there making sales and getting in the door and being the like the worst sales person that you would ever want in your house, not because he's bad, but because he's so persistent and so... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Familiar. Like yeah. I th- one of my favorite moments of acting that isn't one of the um, main f- people is the uh, the guy whose lemon has gone into his home and and is is like pitching where he's like no we have to go now uh no i i have to go like pick up my kids um i have to go pick up my wife we've got something to do please leave like please leave and he can't meet his eyes yeah and it's like oh i feel like i've been there where you know the people come to the door and they're like will you give money to this thing and it's like please no like i've got dinner on the stove and like this is really not the time and please don't I, I think that's the the thing around like are they good at their job? That's what I was saying earlier around how it feels like a generational shift. If good at your job means sell units, many of them are good at their job because they show up on the board. But in terms of how they do it and um, their motivation for doing it, I think that's where it's so interesting because some of them are like realizing like this is not right. Like this can't be how the game is played and. The new ones that the, kind of say, no, no, it's all about the units. Do whatever you have to do. Like, it doesn't matter. And and then you, on top of that, it's the, the thing around any lack of performance. Oh, it's just a dip. I can do better versus no, it's just crappy leads. If I only had the leads, which is such a recurring theme in this entire thing, is it's crazy. If I only had better leads, I'd be able to, to sell more. So, like, I, I think you can't isolate the, are they good at their job from how they do it to get the results and then what they blame on uh, when they don't get the results. But the thing is, is that we know that they're actually getting the bad leads. Like, in the end, Spacey's like, yeah, I gave you terrible leads because I don't like you. And and so that really does impact, like... The, the performance. I think one of the, the things for me, which ties back to this kind of like criticism on capitalism, though, is like at the end of the day, these guys are like selling swampland in Florida. Oh, yeah. Right. So like they're not good people and they know it. Well, but I also think that partly ties back to, well, why aren't more of these guys good at their job? But it's like, well, your job is to sell something that no reasonable person. What well, these are basically the like, you know, tell them or like. If they were working today, they'd be the people in like spamming your email with nonsensical like email ads trying to get you to click on links or like whatever. You're like, you know, send me money so that I can transfer you this wealth from my princedom in whatever country around the world. Right. Like these are con men selling like garbage things to people. And I think part of the reflection of why why all of them are having a hard time is not everybody is stupid. Well, and and I wonder to your point earlier, Chris, you know, occasionally some people seem like they're not cut out for the job because they may have like a little bit of humanity soul, yeah. left. And so is it like, is Alec Baldwin so freaking good at the job uh, because he has zero soul and the more soul you have, the worse you are at this job? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is like a, a better version of um, Boiler Room, which I have seen. And it, it goes back to that same kind of thing of like, like, we're here to make money. 
you can leave everything else at the door because that we're not here to be parents or good husbands or friends or good people. We're, we're here to make money. Right. And I think that's what, like, I don't know, maybe Baldwin's a perfectly nice dad and a good friend, but like, he's very clear in the beginning. Like I, like nobody cares about that stuff within these walls. You're here to do a job and this job is selling things. I mean, whether you want to show up to sell swampland in Florida to people who probably can't afford it, that's the job you signed up for, right? So are they good at their jobs? It's really hard to tell. It's really, really hard to tell. And does it matter? I don't think it does because they're all just Mm -hmm. caught in this system, which is abusive and degrading and not for the good of really anyone involved except for kind of these invisible owners who are constantly referenced but never seen. And that system is called capitalism. Egg. Exactly. That's what I was saying about the uh, ending. And I'm going to have to say it now because like the Alan Arkin character, like it just wraps up with him saying, I hate this job. And then that just it like it's gonna it's like a Greek mythology tragedy thing. It's just gonna start over again. They're gonna go back to do what they do, and that's it. Nothing has changed, nothing has improved. They're just gonna go back to the grindstone and I hate this job. And I think that in a way is such a perfect ending because it it just encapsulates the entire thing that they've gone through this pressure to do things. So at the end of the day, nothing has changed. Well, I think that that is, is exactly how I was kind of left feeling about the, the movie is like, how much should you feel sympathy for these people? I mean, I think you should feel happy that you are not these people. I, I felt bad for these people in the sense that I felt like they were stuck in some ways without better options in a system or in a place that kind of put them in this awful competitive, you know, vitriolic environment uh, where I'm like, I don't, I mean, I feel like sure, maybe you could go do another job, but maybe they couldn't. Cause it seems like some of them, like Jack Lemon's character, it's like, I've been student doing stuff like this all my life. Where else can I go at this point? Especially when I've got bills to pay. I've got a daughter who's sick. Like, I don't know. Is there anywhere else to go? I don't know. It's kind of like that for me, this was, um, I don't know, like a a tragedy in some ways as it played out Mm -hmm. for me. It is funny, though, because we talked about this in our very first episode, uh, The Town, and the whole idea that there's so many people who were in that environment where they felt they didn't have an option. They didn't have anywhere to to go but to, to stay. And that is very, that echoes here because it is, of course, they have options. It's just they don't see it. All they see is the person is coming in from downtown for the success and this threat looming over them. And they just feel like I have to keep to it. I have to just, just like work harder, do more. But of course they have options. It's just, it doesn't occur to them that they have options. And that is this tragedy of, I hate this job. Let's just do it all over again. And then three years from now, we're going to sit here and have the exact same conversation. I uh, think that is right. I could imagine that this movie continues to play out uh, and maybe some of the people change. In fact, I saw an interesting thing where Al Pacino went back on stage to do Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross again, except this time he's much older and he's actually playing uh, Shelley Levine 
uh, this time oh, around. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's kind of like I could, in my head, I could see this story just continuing with these shady salesmen selling shady things and some of the people getting drummed out, new people coming in. You know, there's the the new Blake and the new Moss and the new whatever, all these people replacing each other. But yeah, it's just kind of a, a story, which I think, I don't know, tying back to an earlier thing, I think it's still relevant. But one thing that I found was not still relevant at all for this movie was the soundtrack. That was a soundtrack full of steaming eighties jazz. I mean, it's that, just, Oh, <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, that is a uh, boy that, that, soundtrack is as as what is the rain <laughs> it uh it is an intense 80s soundtrack just the the i don't know that we've had a more 80s soundtrack in the same way that enter the dragon is this like perfect 70s soundtrack this you would play for somebody and they would go oh yeah 1980s and yet movies 1992 Interesting you say that because, you know, when we talked about uh, Enter the Dragon, that soundtrack is equally hip today. Sure, you can trace it back to say like, yeah, it's from that era, but it's super hip today. What this soundtrack does is that it captures this funny era where everyone used a saxophone. If you, if you watched MTV, then pretty much every music video had someone at some point cutting to a scene where they were either uh, standing in the rain or sitting in a windowsill, or doing something with a saxophone. And it was just like, this soundtrack captures that, and that did not survive well. It's gone for a reason, and unfortunately, the soundtrack is forever. Okay, so hold on. So we've got we've got saxophone, we've got rain. We do have a number of shots of, of people standing next to windowsills. Is the hot take on this that uh, Glengarry Glen Ross is uh, the ultimate 80s music video? <laughs> Possibly. I, I, I found the, the weird jazz... Uh, that played out throughout this movie, um, bizarre, uh, distracting. And I mean, I think intentional or not oddly sexual because it's playing out at these times where these guys are almost being seduced by the sale and the story of the sale. So it's, I mean, sometimes it made sense, but in a really weird, creepy way of just like, Oh, this is like, porno jazz playing underneath these guys talking about making a sale and getting oddly aroused about it. Like I found it was just weird and out of place. I mean, porno jazz is a really kind of good way of putting it because like the, these guys really do seem like they are getting off on sales and you know, there is a, a, real sexualization around the sales and talking about the sales and the fact that there are like no women in this movie i think there's there's one woman in the background at one point in the chinese restaurant yep. but like that lack of women in it puts in an even uh like shines a brighter lantern you know our spotlight on the fact that like the sale seems to be the sales equal sex rather than, you know, women or men equal sex. If that makes sense. Yeah, you know, absolutely. 
I also think the like there are a few things where they do a thing that you could accept, but it's overdone. So the music could have been okay, but overdone. And also the intro, really clever thing around uh, how they do the thing with the title sequence and you have a train effect going. But then they do it for like a minute and you go, yeah, I really get it. And then the office is set with a subway train in the background. Like there's just certain things that was like, that was a great idea, but you way overdid it. And like if they had just toned that down a little bit, even the music, I probably would have said, hey, that's cool. That, That worked. It did its thing. But when it's so done throughout, then you go, okay, well, this is too much. Pull back. Speaking of things that could have been possibly overdone, I'm curious how each of you feels about the sheer volume of profanity in this movie. Well, yeah, I, I am... But I went in knowing that there would be a sheer amount of profanity because... It's a David Mamet joint. Um, I also use a huge amount of profanity in my everyday speaking. So uh, I was fine with it. It reflects how it reflects not some of the, the, the truly, you know, vulgar and cutting stuff, but for emphasis. Yeah, it, it, it works for me. I'm sort of with Evan because I didn't pick up on it, which means I didn't think it was out of place or weird or unnatural. So if uh, if I was to ask uh, you guys who you thought dropped the F-bomb the most in this film, who do you think it was? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to say... Harris? That's such a good one. I was going to say Al Pacino feels like the obvious one, but I was also going to say Ed Harris because I think he was he was griping the most. He was the most sort of like a chip on his shoulder around the leads. So I would I would have said the same. Uh yeah, you're 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 both uh right. I I my results uh, as audited by the accounting firm of DeShane, nobody and no one else. Uh got uh Ed Harris with 47 F bombs uh throughout the course of that movie. There's 127 in total. There's a, a period where um Pacino takes the lead again, but then when uh Harris's character goes off and is just cursing at everybody. And then he storms out of the office. Uh, he just like runs away with it at that point. So for 47 out of 127 F-bombs, 190 uh, total curse words uh, that I counted uh, watching this movie with my little uh, tick mark sheet here. I think, again, the thing I found really interesting about all the cursing was just um how it ebbs and flows with the characters, because I just noticed that um, uh, uh, Shelley's character has almost none on the scoreboard until you enter that final kind of like uh, act where he's now made a sale. He's back on top of the world and then he's toppled off of his perch and suddenly he actually gets into a close third place right behind Pacino's character. I just I found it a little bit cathartic. Uh, to just sit there and put little tick marks down in columns with different swear words written across the rows and columns for each of the characters. It was oddly cathartic as I was watching this movie to be like, there's another F-bomb. There's another shit. Okay, there we go. This is fun. 
I feel like that's very on brand for you, Chris. And you know, maybe as a, a as a bonus, we will upload a template for viewers to uh, download and fill out as they watch this thing. And kind of like, you know, where did you notice the the swear words? That could be a fun exercise for the entire yeah, family. Where, don't do don't do a drinking game with, with, with. Oh my god, you die! You would die if you did a drinking game for this movie. So one last question then before we wrap up here. Do you think you'll come back to this movie anytime soon? Uh, I don't know about anytime soon. I'm very happy that I saw it. Um, Do I need to feel those kind of like gross feels again for the next while? Not really. No, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to come back to this for a bit. I don't want to watch this again. Um, it was okay. I'm glad I watched it. Good performances. I will not seek this out again. Um, there's not enough in it where, where I would just go like, oh yeah, I, I can't wait to, to watch this one scene again. No, I'm, I'm good. I've had my fill. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm in the same boat to say. I think this is an exceptional movie to see, to experience those performances, and then... Uh, to set aside, except, you know, this is maybe one of those movies that you uh, show your your kid or something when they're old enough and you're like, don't be these people <laughs> like don't don't do this. This isn't the version of a person I want you to become that. And like, uh, uh, you know, Wall Street and a couple of those films where you're like, everybody takes the wrong messages out of these. So I want you to understand them. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't feel the need to. Uh, throw this on again anytime soon. But I do think it's a great watch for anybody who hasn't seen it. And on that note, that's probably a good place to call it. And that's what we thought of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. So uh, we would love to know what you thought about this movie. You can always find us on Twitter at how did you miss this? That's HDYMT underscore pod. And while you're there, take a look at some of the movies that we're planning on watching soon. Send us questions and any thoughts you might have that you want us to cover on the show. And if you enjoy what we're doing here, do us a favor. Take a second to rate, review and subscribe uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you happen to be listening. And next week, we'll be back when we'll be watching there's something about Mary and seeing if this over-the-top 90s comedy still has something about it or whether it should stay missed. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you then. Oh, what a big man you are. (laughs) Why don't you buy a pack of gum and I'll show you how to chew it.